listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... My name is Adam Pryor. I work at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. If I were to modify any part of my body in order to be considered a cyborg, although I would argue I'm already a cyborg, mm-hmm. the part that I would modify are my legs so that I could leap over tall buildings like Superman. My name is uh, Ian Benz, Associate Professor of Elementary Science Education at UNC Charlotte. And if I had to change any part of my body to become a cyborg, probably my right arm. Because after all that uh, infection in my arm and damage to my hand, it hurts all the time. So yeah, I would make that better. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and if I could cybernetically alter a part of my body, I would get the eyes that Captain Jang had in the Space Sweepers movie that we watched with our patrons a while back, where she could see through stuff and she had all this like heads-up display that was in her eyeball, and it made her really good at playing poker. Space poker? Um, so whatever they were playing. Okay, I guess I should have gone before Zach, because I was going to say that I would change my eyes, but never mind. Okay. (laughs) Kendra Holtmore, a PhD student at Boston University, and if I could make myself a cyborg, I would change my ears so that I could automatically translate any language that I heard, and I could travel anywhere I wanted to go. Ooh. You would get the Babblefish from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, yeah. Exactly that. that Which is a wonderful app, by the way, Babbel. It's a good language (laughs) program. So there you go. Kendra, it works out well. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by... That's right. There it is. No one. No one. It is brought to you by no one except ourselves and our patrons. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Take that, Babel. <laughs> um, okay. Well, if you couldn't tell already by the question today, <laughs> we... <laughs> what? Why do you want us to change body parts, Kendra? Uh, we... Crushing it with that segue. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I've been practicing. Um, we are... Uh, entering a new miniseries on artificial intelligence and its connection to religion. Uh, And so we thought that we would start this new series on AI and just have a general conversation about um, like what AI does to uh, our questions about personhood and like what the limits of personhood and even the the boundaries between uh, personhood and divinity and robot and animal, how all of these uh, boundaries change as we have uh, new developments in technology. And this is, these are questions that have always been relevant because technology has been with us <laughs> um, for, for a long time, but it Um, Every time we have new technology, those questions become relevant, and they're the same questions that we can always ask about technological developments, but um, the way that we answer those questions change 
over time and context. And now it's really interesting to talk about personhood and the limits of personhood because artificial intelligence is increasingly complex and is looking so much more uh, subtle and human-like that it just it feels a lot more complicated to to think about the role of technology in our lives and the role that it plays in religious rituals, um, the way that we relate to technology. Um, it, it, it's a lot easier to personify robots uh, in some cases than it ever has been. And so we're being forced to um, ask ourselves how we relate to technology and can robots be uh, just like people, are they? Should we think of them as another species? Can robots participate in religion? Can, for some people uh, who talk about you know salvation in their theology, can robots be saved? Can can robots um, administer funeral rites and perform the same roles that uh, religious clergy do for us? Uh, so all of these things, it's a massive conversation, so we're not going to cover everything in this uh, <laughs> conversation in the next hour or so. But uh, just to give a, a, a teaser to like all of the issues at stake, and then we'll go into more specific topics uh, as we go along, because there's a lot, a lot to think about um, with this, with this, the topic of AI. Um, so, yeah. I think that uh, one one thing I'll, I can add to start, uh, because I think it's a useful analogy and a, a story that I think I think one of you has um, referenced before on our podcast. I don't remember remember why, but um, I think it was either Adam or Zach at one point brought up the the story about the the ship of uh, Theseus. It was both of us. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so for those of you who don't remember that or don't know what that is, it's this paradox that basically asks the question, if you have a ship and you restore the ship and you replace each part of the ship with newer wood, over time, you've restored the entire ship. But is the ship the same ship or is it a brand new ship after each part of it has been restored? And that paradox is really interesting when you're talking about um, artificial intelligence and these questions about personhood because you can ask it in a similar way, but thinking about uh, brain neurons or you know pick any number of like human body parts. But the the formulation of it that I've heard is if you replace a human neuron with a mechanical equivalent of a neuron. At what point is that human a robot or a totally different type of organism or machine? And does that person have the same consciousness? Are they essentially the same or have they become something different? You know, if if they're if all the neurons in their body are completely replaced with mechanical pieces, like what what are they? Who are they? And that is sort of the equivalent of this uh, ship of Theseus paradox that's, I think, interesting for us to understand what's at stake. Because we're not just talking about, like, uh, you know, some, like, cartoonish robot that's square and has, you know, beep, boop, bop, 
noises coming out of it. Like <laughs> we're talking about sophisticated uh, robots that actually make us feel like we're relating to human beings. And so I think that using that paradox to talk about the limits of personhood is uh, helpful in this case. So what what are what do y'all think about what do, what do you think about well, robots? I, I think it's interesting <laughs> that we you talk about like so anything in our brain, but I mean we use technology to address medical scenarios all the time. People who get artificial limbs and things like that, I mean that is a form of technology. Right. And so there's the ability to then, I mean, I don't understand them that well, but from, you know, to try to, isn't it like with the technology, especially like limbs is to try to be able to connect it so that it functions like a normal leg, mm-hmm. right? So that your brain is still able to communicate with that part of your body to make sure it's functioning just like a regular leg is. There's plenty of artificial arms and hands that connect to neurons in your body that you can still control. Right. And so I feel like in that situation, I mean, those people are still themselves. I mean, I, I'm not, I, I can't speak for anyone just because I, that's not happened to me, but I'm just curious, like how they would feel. So we watch a lot of Toy Story in our house. And Such a wonderful series. I was thinking a lot about the personhood of the toys of Toy Story today and at what point they cease to be considered living creatures um you are you all familiar with the toy story franchise yeah no no yeah yeah what's some, toy oh, story? Yeah. some of you know <laughs> yeah so they do explore some really interesting questions of personhood especially in the fourth one where um bonnie makes a toy out of a fork a spork and it comes to life and that nobody knows how it's given life and what its personhood then entails. Um, but that's a different episode. We'll talk Forky another day. <laughs> what I was interested in was Toy Story 3. What makes a Mr. Potato Head a Mr. Potato Head? Because that's the big joke throughout the whole franchise, right? Is that you can you can swap out their eyes and their arms and their legs and whatnot, but they're still a Mr. Potato Head. And there's one scene where Mr. Potato Head is trying to escape out. And so he takes on, he takes his his body parts off and puts them on a tortilla so he can slide under stuff and move around. And this is totally normal to the, to the audience. This makes total sense because the essence of personhood of the Mr. Potato Head is not the potato, but the parts of it that go together and then in a, a later scene he's on a he's on a cucumber and his his mrs potato head goes oh you're so thin and so tall and it's wonderful <laughs> and then he puts it back on his it's potato really body and he goes wait, oh wait, that's so wait, much wait, better wait, 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 i'm so happy <laughs> that voice that voice was so spot on that was impressive Impressive. Yeah. I love how Jersey she is, by the way. How she <laughs> says, where's my pocketbook? And the fact that she calls her purse a pocketbook, just, oh, I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> but this is not a podcast about New Jersey. <laughs> this is a podcast about Potato Head, okay? This is now officially the Mr. Potato Head podcast or the Zach's fan theories about children's television and movies <laughs> podcast because I could do a whole series on that. I but have anyway, no doubt. 
uh, what I found interesting was not like drawing a one-to-one comparison of like what is the potato head personhood and at what point does it cease to become a Mr. Potato Head and become Mr. Tortilla Head or something, but is the fact that implicitly the people watching understood that this was still the same potato head because it still had this, it was still functioning as the same potato head. That without the potato, he still could talk, he still could move, he still could think as himself. And so there was like a transcendent personhood that went above and beyond just all of the little pieces of the potato head. And the same can be seen from the first Toy Story where uh, Sid has all of these toys that he's ripped apart and reconfigured and put, you know, the pterodactyl head on the on his sister's doll and it still moves and it has a personhood and it's just the fact that we watch that and that doesn't take us out of the the movie we buy it we believe it because somewhere deep down inside we also believe that if we were to take our brain out and put it in a jar and then that brain could still think that that would still be us right like the the in Futurama, you ever watch Futurama? How no. like the um, emperor of the world or whatever is Richard Nixon's head in a jar? Uh, <laughs> 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 like that's still Richard Nixon, even though it's just his head controlling a, a, a monster, a mechanical monster of sorts. And I, I think I, there just is something there that we implicitly understand that a person is still a person when they change physically. I think it's really interesting that the examples that you have given, and I think everything we've been talking about has really focused on the brain as being the seat of personhood. And just to um, make a point too, that even apart from what we're talking about in terms of uh, like technology, robots, all of that, even the, the science of what it means to be us or, you know, questions about consciousness or, you know, like where we feel, um, uh, uh, like emotion, like all of these things have changed over time with the development of the science of the microbiome and how, you know, the brain, of course, yes, there's like so, so much about it that is central to who we are. Um, but we just know so much more now uh, than we did several decades ago about the many, many forms of life that compose who we are. We're we're already composite organisms in a sense. And so there it's like interesting that we we do still think often about the brain as being like the the core of our beings, but uh that that has already been complicated before you even get to uh cyborgs and and robots and things like that. It's just cuz we're bad cartesians. You and that Cartesian again. <laughs> I I think we can blame Rene Descartes pretty much for all of this. Why don't you tell us more about that, Adam? Yeah. We can blame Rene Descartes for this obsession that we have with trying to locate a soul in the body. So good old Descartes, right? Very worried about minds and bodies. 
Classic. And how the two things connect, right? And usually we read about, you know, the Cartesian meditations and this kind of thing and evil genies that he wrote about. But if you put that stuff aside, right, he also did a lot of work as um, in, in anatomy. He was deeply, deeply interested in human anatomy. Um, and so a lot of his work is actually contemporary to uh, an, an English anatomist named Harvey who kind of wins the day because, you know, his stuff actually works as opposed to Descartes who is imagining that there are like invisible fires inside your heart. It's super fun to read. Let me just say that. <laughs> um, but his obsession is with this idea that you have an incorporeal sense of soul, an essence that continues on, that's distinct from your body. And he's obsessed with finding the point at which these two things connect. Eventually, he says it's the pineal gland inside your brain. Let me just say that's not true. And it was a terrible idea. But the idea. No, I'm not cutting Rene Descartes slack. (laughs) There was a good English anatomist (laughs) working across the channel that if he'd just listened, he'd have probably come up with better ideas. So, you know, this idea, right, that we have this essence that continues on has, I think, just simply morphed itself into equating mind and brain. So we say, I could put my brain in a jar and I'd still be me. And I want to say, bullshit. Yeah, which part of that would be me? <laughs> the brain in the jar or the vessel? Nope, this this incorporeal sense of self that is enabled by the brain in the jar. Oh. Mm. No, just, yeah. no, that doesn't work. It will never work. It reminds me of the experiment with uh, Duncan McDougall in 1901, that he where there were uh, he wanted to weigh the soul, and so yep. he found six mm-hmm. old people that were dying, and he put them on a death scale, um, which was like a bed that measured, and then waited and watched them die, and tried to measure if their body got any lighter. And that way he could tell how heavy the soul was and came up with 21 grams, which, I mean, I don't, I don't really want to go into the, all of the methodological problems with his study and his <laughs> conclusion and all of the ethical concerns of just like finding six people and watching them die so you can measure their soul. It's just, there was no IRB then. It was fine. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing's totally like... 1901, right? This is a different era. But it also was a bit of a fool's errand that you can't measure the soul because the soul maybe does not exist in in the way that people like Descartes would want to uh, want to believe. Which by the way, in 7th grade, I wrote a poem and I thought I was so intellectual and I pronounced it Descartes and I read it in front of the class. I think, therefore, I am, Descartes did say, was the line. And I, <laughs> oh, I was thought, really hoping that there was going to be like a rhyme made with Descartes <laughs> as like no. a fundamental part of the poem. That would, oh, that would have been good. Yeah. I came up and, with this at Hardee's, like something like that. <laughs> <laughs> that was off the fly right there. That was, that was so good. Where were you in seventh grade, man? I'm so proud of that. 
Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's my secret shame because no one in my class in seventh grade knew who Descartes was. And I'm sure my teacher was just like, oh, that's adorable. But I still I will carry that shame to my grave every time somebody mentions Descartes. Maybe Descartes. one day you'll run into someone and they'll be like, oh, yeah, you're that kid who said Descartes in sixth grade <laughs> or seventh grade. I thought you were going to say maybe one day you'll run into Descartes. And... Oh, no. I, I mean, maybe... Maybe, if Maybe he's my got soul some, one like, day cryonic, will ascend and... uh, existence in the future. Uh, I wanted to ask Adam beca- because I feel like you maybe didn't finish your thought of like what what's the what's the next part of that conversation for you like talking like even just setting soul aside for now because I feel like that's sure. not always relevant to to what well you're I, so so here's the piece that I think is actually really relevant to things like artificial intelligence sort of writ large, right? I think a lot of artificial intelligence work, particularly work on artificial intelligence and religion, sort of focuses on these features of artificial intelligence that look like consciousness. And I want to say that relies on a certain notion that Descartes put in place, that you can separate the consciousness from the body. It's two sort of vessels, right? I could take the consciousness and put it into any body that I would like, because that body is really just a fancy robot, And it's no big deal. And I want to say, no, I don't think so. And probably ye folks thinking about AI and religion and issues like that, we probably need to think about like, what is the embodied experience of AI just as much as we talk about AI in terms of its consciousness? That's why I liked actually our opening question was like about like what body body part you would replace, right? Is that I think that the, the embodiment aspect of how we talk about AI actually really matters and it gets a lot of short shrift. Yeah. No, that is. Can we, you said, uh, Adam, at the beginning with answering that question, you talked about how you believe you're a cyborg already and that you would argue that we are as well. And yeah. we'll come back to that. Right. Can we come back to that or is not? Well, you wear glasses, right, Ian? <laughs> I do. Yeah. So you're a cyborg. Oh. Right. This is a technological enhancement of your body. Check. Okay. That augments and increases your functionality in the world. Yeah. Ooh, me next. How am I a robot? Or you a wear cyborg? shoes. <laughs> I'll choose I'll choose something different for everybody, right? Right? You don't walk around barefoot so that you can go further throughout the day in a more comfortable fashion. Shoes make you a cyborg. But this is I the most boring question... cyborg. I know. <laughs> yeah, I like well like... my question about a cyborg is that I imagine a cyborg as at least say the, beep and boop and bop <laughs> with like a little red laser for one eye, like Terminator. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that that could be one kind. But another uh, more general uh, representation of cyborg that I I feel is common is that the, the cyborg piece of the person is permanent. Yeah. Just like the parts of your body, generally speaking, are permanent. All right. So if you want me to go a little bit more permanent. Yeah, I I'll do. Go, I'll go with two. Um, anybody who has a tattoo, now you're a cyborg. I don't have one. Why? I have one. It's a, it is a permanent emendation of the body, right? Meant to enhance your status in the world. Hmm. Enhance my Kendra, status Kendra, do you feel enhanced? Zach, do you feel enhanced? I do feel enhanced. 
I mean, I often feel better than other people, but that's just like, that's a... Yeah. That's just a personal issue. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... It's not because of it's my cause hella cool It's because I can cool do tats. Mr. Potato Head voices. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> or, or like, I'll, I'll give you one that maybe doesn't hit everybody like on here, right? Um, someone who has been, has used, a, has had surgical mesh used in order to do a hernia repair, right? Yeah. That's grafted into the body. It is not biological in its construction. It is permanent. And practical. It cannot be removed without some fairly significant damage. Right. Yeah, I, I'm really intrigued by – so I, I that example <clears throat> makes a lot of sense to me. That's like something I would say as giving an example of what a cyborg is. But I'm really intrigued by the idea of uh, – adaptations that are not practical because or not um functional like a tattoo isn't and i well my tattoo i should say is not functional and what is your tattoo again it's a i can't really roll my sleeve up but uh it is a tattoo of a line from a robert frost poem and it just says and miles to go uh Mm. and it's just personal like it my connection to that poem as a child and over the years of my life uh, has a connection to my my mother and my move to Boston. And so it's just about like memories and more personal issues rather than being functional in any way. And I feel happy when I look at it. And maybe my status does change depending on who's looking at my ta- sometimes people give me a look like oh, hmm, woman with an arm <laughs> tattoo and then other people Robert are like Frost, oh really? my god like uh, <laughs> tell me more about your tattoo how mainstream <laughs> well, wouldn't you argue that that's functional the way you described it couldn't that yeah. be an argument for it being functional not just personal I mean you're you're talking about when you are looking at it and the impression it gives on you Right, it makes you happy. It reminds you of things, and then it potentially could be argued that's useful for drive as well. That's function. I mean, yeah, I guess so. I guess it's a generous definition of functional. I'll, I'll, as I'll, much I'll as art with, is functional, I guess. I'll, I'll play with the way Ian's doing this a little bit differently, right? If I put a microchip in your brain that sent a little electric shock that made you feel happy. I think you would agree that that would make you a cyborg. Yeah. But the the functional output of this is not necessarily different. You look at the tattoo and it creates a sense of euphoria. But it but it doesn't every time. I think that's the difference. It's not a reliable oh. outcome that if I look I mean it does generally speaking make me happy. Sometimes it makes me feel nothing. <laughs> and sometimes for people, I think you know, maybe they look at their tattoo. I'm not saying that I feel this way yet in my life, but might look at their tattoos and regret having them. Uh, like, I, I think that when I'm thinking of uh, objects that are functional or pragmatic, there are reliable outcomes. There's one purpose for having it, and it it's more like a cog in a machine rather than something like a tattoo, which I think of more as art, which can be so um, like amorphous and abstract in the way that it makes you feel or orient yourself in a time and space. 
and that can change over time and in different contexts. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know, though. It, it is intriguing. Um, so how much of this is our familiarity with the technology that I think of, like, keep it with tattoos. If you have some photorealistic tattoo, that is something that tattoo artists have only been able to do for the past 60 years, maybe a little bit longer with these highfalutin electric uh, tattoo guns. Before that, everything would have been done manually with little pokey needles. And so tattoos were a lot less detailed. So somebody from 300 years ago sees your tattoo of your mom's face on you and they're like, whoa, this person is crazy advanced. Or you imagine going back to the Middle Ages and telling someone that I have replaced a part of my heart with a cow's heart. They would see you as some kind of horrifying chimera and probably burn you because that's what they did back then and or how how crazy is it to think about pacemakers and defibrillators and how mm. commonplace they are now like those people those people are totally cyborgs and we don't think about it because it's commonplace when you talked about getting that electrode put in your brain that stimulates different parts of your brain that feels like science fiction to me though i know that that is becoming more and more commonplace and is turning out to be far more effective than medication in treating really severe forms of depression and schizophrenia and bipolar that is amazing and one day We'll look at somebody with that, and they'll just be like, oh, well, yeah, of course, that's that's uh, Henry. He had that done uh, outpatient procedure a couple weeks ago. Instead of, you have electronics in your brain that is artificially stimulating it. It'll just be normal. So I think, I think the process of turning into cyborgs is going to be so slow that we won't realize it because it's already happening and we don't realize it. Yeah. And like and knee replacements... So Hip yeah, replacements. yeah. So it's it's not going to be like one day somebody has like like cyborg from the DC universe or something, and you're like, oh my gosh, now they're half machine, and you know we're not going to end up with like a Darth Vader or a General Grievous tomorrow or something. But it's going to slowly, slowly, and slowly keep happening until the point when you realize, like, oh wait, how much of me is machine? How much of me is is human? And I think by that point, it won't bother us as much. And we'll just have acclimated to the idea and that this is only a real big discussion now because it's new and scary. Yeah, you talking about Darth Vader makes me think about Obi-Wan talking about Darth. He's more machine now than man. Right? Because he's an old prejudiced man who lives in the <laughs> desert and he needs to get with the times. But so here's something from the original. Uh, I mean, from the uh, so people can't see this. Zach's pointing right at me. <laughs> right at you. Right at my camera. The um, uh, What's the name of the third uh, Star Wars Part 3? Return of the Jedi? No, Part Revenge three. of the Sith. Yes. When Luke... Uh, when Luke... When, when Anakin goes up to the younglings, yes. and the younglings Master look at him, Skywalker. and they're like, What? And he goes... No, with the lightsaber. What? They don't say that, what? What? That's not what they said. I don't care. 
Just okay. keep going. <laughs> Let, <laughs> Let me finish. Let me finish. Master Skywalker, there are two. Let me finish. Whatever are we to do. <laughs> Sorry. The child that says that, they intentionally made look like young Anakin because they wanted you to know that that's the moment that he killed Anakin. That's the moment that Anakin ended oh, yeah. and Darth Vader started. Not the moment that he got burned and had to be cybernetically enhanced. Yeah. That it was the act of dehumanizing himself that he stopped being who he was, not the mechanation. Yeah. Because technically he was called Darth Vader before he became the... He's more machine now than man. Right. And so despite, despite old Obi-Wan being a prejudiced troglodyte you know then <sighs> this is what george lucas wanted you to know your disdain for obi-wan right now hurts me i love obi-wan don't get okay, me wrong good. but the isolation i'm, I'm super happy that the phrase prejudiced troglodyte <laughs> got used <laughs> i feel like we're bringing up the like gre words I'm, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, now i'm having flashbacks <laughs> I'm excited for the new Obi-Wan series on a side note. Mm -hmm. It's going to be good good times. So, but is any of this that we're talking about actual <laughs> artificial intelligence? I, I think it's on the road to artificial intelligence. Okay. Mm. Like, I think that's the, the piece that I would say, right? Like, so I think, I think often we want to sort of skip right over things like cyborgs and jump right into fancy thinking machines. Hmm. And I think what's interesting, like when you talk about cyborgs, is you realize, one, how integral machines are to our lives. Even before we all lived on Zoom, like machines mm -hmm. were like increasingly integrated into our experience of what it is to be a contemporary human being, right? Anybody who doesn't believe this just needs to walk into a room full of college students with their cell phones, which Even are easier than that live in a very hot environment, right? Yeah. In the summer and walk into a house with the air conditioning unit. And then all of a sudden the power goes out. And even though you open up your windows, the way the houses are now designed, right? The more new houses with the expectation that you would have central air, when it goes out, the way the windows typically are designed, the placement of them, the airflow is not the same as they used to be pre-air conditioning. Right? So you think about, like whenever you see these, period piece films and TV shows. Yeah. I'm always, I remember used to being like, Oh my God, how did they survive with all those clothes on? It was that hot without air conditioning, but the way things were designed then were differently than they are now. Right. So. And I think like when we, when we think about artificial intelligence, we, we forget about that long history of buildup of the integration of human beings and technology. And I don't, I don't think you can actually separate those two conversations. Mm-hmm. Or if you do, like, I, I don't think it's as rich. So I, I do think this, like, leads very naturally into that, like, wider conversation about artificial intelligence. But it, it's it's almost like a, like a primer for realizing how insinuated technology is into the various parts of our lives. Yeah, because it's the intelligence piece that we're afraid of. You talk about us all being Cartesian, but bad Cartesians, that that's, that's where we find the biggest threat to our personhood. Like the thought about replacing limbs, you're not going to get somebody saying that's not a real person other than in either, either some kind of 
prejudiced way or just an academic exercise into the ship of Theseus problem. But when you start talking about things that affect how you think, then we start feeling uncomfortable. And anyone who has taken any kind of antidepressant or any kind of medicine like that understands this feeling that I don't know who I am. If who I am is determined by the chemicals in my brain and the medication that I take can alter my thinking and my actions that much, then who even am I? I feel like everyone I know who has taken some kind of serious psychotropic medication has that kind of crisis of who am I really? Because we realize that it's not just like, well, I was sad and now I'm happy, but there's a fundamental shift mm -hmm. in my personality. When I was writing a novel and then I started taking Zoloft and then I couldn't write fiction anymore. It stopped. I stopped being able to think about worlds that didn't exist. And like, I had to come to terms with that. Uh, this part of my personality, I think, is maybe gone at the expense of also being able to be a functional father. So I had to pick, like, which one am I going to be? And even even at the beginning, I was transitioning medications at the beginning of the pandemic. So that was a bad mm -hmm. time <laughs> to do that. Yeah. And it was awful, totally awful. Um, my wife told me the other day that in one of her journal entries during that time was, I just want my husband back. That like, mm -hmm. she didn't know who I was anymore. And that's because my personality shifted so much because of the medications. And that's, that's a technology, though there's no electricity in it. And it affects how we think and how we feel. And so it feels more dangerous than a cybernetic arm. Right? And I don't know if that's just because my thinker is broken, so I can't think through the thinking problem. And so it... I... <sighs> Yeah. But I think I think you're right, Zach, right? Like and you can start to to kind of categorize the different ways in which this scale of technology and artificial intelligence is or isn't threatening, right? So like if it deals with intelligence, right? That's that's certainly one level of sort of existential threat that's produced, right? But um if the technology is permanent or removable, right? Which we were talking about, that's a that's a level of existential threat that's produced, right? Um no one's as concerned about Ian's glasses or me riding my bicycle, which is usually like my go-to example of becoming a cyborg and then taking off my cyborg self, <laughs> right? Um, like nobody's as threatened about that as they are like, you know, removing surgical mesh or like dealing with artificial limbs, right? So you can start to really grade these pieces out. And I think that's where I look at it and go like, if we jump too quick to just the artificial intelligence piece and don't look at that whole scale of phenomena, we miss something about how we make some assumptions by being bad Cartesians that that aren't necessarily helpful and that I think are really, really important. Yeah, and it seems like one of the other uh, like parallels uh, or, or maybe differences between what Zach is talking about with the way that medication changes us um, for for various reasons, and and artificial intelligence, which we think of as being entirely uh, constructed by people who have degrees in I don't know computer science and engineering and whatever people who build robots do. Uh, like, there's a difference in that. Uh, 
people, humans who are taking things like medication or even have uh, cyborg elements to their own bodies, uh, they they started as just a, a person who anyone would say like, oh yeah, their starting point is human. And in cases where you're taking medication, most people would say they're still human. They mm-hmm. have these like side effects. Um, for people who have, you know, uh, metal knees and hips and electrical impulse machinery in their bodies, I think most people would say they're still human, maybe a uh, cyborg. But in the case of um, the, the kind of artificial intelligence that we find so threatening um, and so confusing um, as to whether we should describe those robots as uh, people or grant them personhood and rights and all that, the starting point of that technology was never human um, in, in the same sense as those other examples of like medication, uh, chemicals, and uh, cyborg pieces. Uh, and so it's just, it's really interesting because there's a lot of similarities in the way that we're thinking about changes to our bodies and personalities and, you know, the the, the seat of who we are or who we perceive ourselves to be, whether for you that's a soul or a brain or your gut microbiome. Um, and it's just, it's a different kind of conversation when you're talking about something that was constructed from the ground up by people to have a, a, a specific purpose maybe, or maybe not just trying to like experiment in this Frankensteinian way to see how close we can get to making something that feels like a person. Um, and so I think that's where the, the conversation feels really different to me when we're talking about these differences in, in the kinds of technologies that change uh, parts of ourselves. Mm-hmm. So to throw a curveball of it going the opposite way, um, are you familiar with the, uh, the Loebner Prize? Mm-mm. It's an annual competition of uh, a Turing test as a Turing test competition, which is where judges will sit at a computer and they will chat with two people. One of them is a person. One of them is a bot. And they will then, after talking with both of them, decide which is which. And there's a number of judges and they're looking, these are experts, right? They're looking for, for people. They started also doing audience participation with the audiences get to vote too. And then they announce who the winner is. And there is a, um, let's see, there's a $25,000 prize for the first program that judges cannot distinguish from a real human and which can convince judges that the human is the computer program. And then a hundred thousand prize for the first program that judges cannot distinguish from a real human that includes deciphering and understanding text, visual, and auditory input, which is the harder than just the typing piece, right? So like pictures and speech and all of that. And nobody has done this so far. These are these are one-time only prizes because when this is achieved, the competition is over. And when this started back in 2006, it was like, it was pretty easy. And it's gotten a lot harder. And in the past couple of years, the machine has almost won, at least the first category. And not because... The machine is getting better at emulating human conversation, but because humans are beginning to emulate machine conversation, 
because so much of our communications these days takes place on phones that are automatically inputting what it thinks is going to be our next word. So trippy. And so it's training us to change our speech patterns, to emulate what it thinks it wants us to say. And so we're meeting in the middle of predictive texts changing us and us changing them. And we are becoming more machine as they are becoming more human. such mixed feelings about this. (laughs) I can't decide if I think that's like really cool and beautiful or if I'm really scared and... What would Robert Frost say? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it depends. Is this going to be like an Iron Giant situation where the robot's all benevolent and happy and stuff? Or is this going to be more like a Terminator situation? (laughs) Yeah, that's a really important distinction. (laughs) (laughs) Those are two wild extremes, too, let me just say. (laughs) Or a third example is the Matrix situation where the world is dying. And so the machines try to help the people and the people get threatened and try to destroy the machines. And the machines are like, well, now we have to destroy the Earth. And they create the Matrix to help us. Now, that's all from the Animatrix, the uh, anime connected piece that probably nobody but the extreme fans like myself has watched. (laughs) Yeah, I've never seen it. Because in the film, it's the humans, they think. Yeah, you're on the the human side. The the humans destroyed the sky so that the machines wouldn't have solar power. And so then the machines were like, well, we'll just use humans as batteries. But they created the matrix so that the humans would have something blissful. So they would give a gift back to humanity that they tried to make it perfect. They tried to make heaven for us, but we couldn't take heaven and we rejected the machine. And so they gave us some irregularities to it. But the machines are the good guys in the Matrix. It's the humans that keep fighting back and ruining everything. First Matrix was a utopia and it fell apart. But we can do a Matrix episode. Of those three movies, (laughs) the first one was good. The other two were just like, oh. Oh, yeah. There's also the Cylons in Battlestar Galactica. I've seen the first mm-hmm. season of the new ver- newer version of it, but I've not seen the other seasons, but I hear they're outstanding. It's just really, it was the first sci-fi show that I saw that really made me think a lot about um, like artificial intelligence, uh, because if you, I mean, I won't, won't talk spoilers about Battlestar Galactica, but Cylons are, they look like humans. Uh, they you have the body tell. of humans. Um, but internally they're machines. And and this also, like that show also made me think a lot about the question of pain when we, which is something we haven't quite touched on yet when we're talking about artificial intelligence. Like if the goal is to make uh, AI that is as close to being human as possible, one, why do we want that? And um, like two. What's so good about being human, right? <laughs> right. 
<laughs> like, you know, what is the goal of actually trying to do that? And will you include all of the the negative um, experiences of what it's like to be in a human body, such as to feel pain, um, which, you know, is like functional for a lot of reasons, like send signals to us about things that are wrong with our body and all of that. But it's just, you know, if a robot can feel pain, is it more of a human than a robot that can't? I've never watched Battlestar Galactica. Do the Cylons feel? Do they have emotions? Or are they like data? Is that a rhetorical question? I have no idea. Are they feeling robots? I've only seen the first episode, but I would argue, or first season, but I would argue that they feel. It's been a long time. I mean, can you really say whether they feel, even if they appear to feel? Well, that's usually a plot point in sci-fi. That was such an Obi-Wan question, Zach. (laughs) I mean, I feel very biased of you. Exactly. If they feel, suddenly they're like more important. Yeah. <laughs> so Data in Star Trek doesn't have feelings. He gets the emotion chip and he goes crazy mm-hmm. and he does not uh, he does not enjoy it. And he'd like to go back to not feeling yeah, anything. Neither do I. The um uh, <laughs> there are definitely days. <laughs> the the reason that the Daleks are such an enduring enemy of the Doctor in Doctor Who is that they were the remnants of nuclear war on their planet. And so they created these creatures that have all of their emotions removed except for hate and then placed in this battleship of sorts with guns and stuff. And so all they feel is hate and they don't feel any love or compassion or anything like that. And so a lot of these robotic creatures in sci-fi we portray them as either feeling no emotions or feeling just the bad ones, or then some of them like feel just the good ones. And we try to live out what that would mean in an individual. Cause does that change the personhood that they're allowed, right? Like you think about how much of who you are right now is because of what you've suffered so much of it, right? That, that consciousness is in of itself a form of suffering. And do we then inflict that on artificial intelligence? Because if we do, we will make them more like us. If we don't, we will give them a much better experience. But anyone who has talked with, like, anyone who knows a rich kid knows that living a life without suffering does not make a good person. So would it make a bad AI? Like, if you made an AI that couldn't feel bad things, would they become a spoiled rich kid who then is just insufferable? Do you then inflict intentional suffering on a machine? And how, what are the ethics of that? Programming, uh, creating an AI that suffers. Like, that feels awful. But hey, God did it. So, you know, it's good enough for God. But I guess because it, it feels like you kind of transitioned from talking about feeling in general to uh, experiences of suffering and I, those are related to me but they're not exactly the same is that I mean full disclosure I'm somebody who's lived their whole life with major depression so emotion does feel like suffering a lot of times to me uh, that might not be the experience for someone else um, yeah because well, I'm the experience for someone else yeah I just I ask because I think that 
um, those could be like two entirely different conversations. Um, and so just to stick for the with the feeling piece for a minute, by which I mean like any kind of feeling, um, you know, whether it's being filled with hate or you're happy or feeling empathy um, and, you know, keeping in mind all the appropriate caveats about like, what is an emotion? Yada, yada, you know, all that. Um, <laughs> Listen to our series on emotions. <laughs> but I, I just like there are humans already like robots aside. There are people who f- feel uh, different spectrums of emotion. And sometimes when people like don't experience certain kinds of emotions, um, we like have uh, n- names for what 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 that is in the DSM five, you know, like uh, so like personhood. If we're going to talk about personhood falling along the lines of a robot that can feel, we also have to uh, acknowledge. I think that we're drawing a line in the sand that requires us to remove personhood, maybe from some people who don't feel. Uh, you know, like how is a, a sociopath uh, fitting into this picture um, and uh, or people who just like don't have don't really know how to uh, feel empathy, um, like all kinds of things. Um, and so it's, it's a really interesting question to me because now we're talking about something that is it's not really a conversation about AI and the limits of personhood, but just like personhood that requires emotion like that's one piece of human experience that is so like basic but it's not super simple i guess Hmm. but i think that's where this like section of talking about issues related to ai to cyborgs technology like this becomes so important because the way we make judgments about the appropriate use of those various technologies mm-hmm. says something about who deserves moral and ethical respect. And all too easily, we might feel real comfortable making certain claims about robots, but boy, we get real squeamish when we're going to say that about other human beings. Mm-hmm. And that lack of consistency is, I think, really important as a process for thinking critically about these issues, right? This is the place where, like, I think, like, AI technologies, right? Like, this is why they function so well in science fiction and speculative fiction, right? They they force us to ask questions about ourselves in ways that we might not otherwise be able to engage as clearly. So yeah. one thing I'm... It, based on some of the things you sent to us as preparation for today's episode, Kendra, is it talks about like with within AI, you know, and the and the potential threats pe- people may feel to religion. One of the articles that, that you know interviewed a PhD student, and one of the things that she talked about when it comes to like religion and AI, she says, you know, these systems are made by us. How are we going to teach these systems what is right and what is wrong? Right? The first thing that hit my mind was who determines what is right and what is wrong? 
Now, I think there are probably plenty of things out there that people can agree on. That's right. That's wrong. You know, like killing people, killing people's bad. Don't do that. Right. But as we see in today's political system, <laughs> uh, the conversation around abortion, pro-choice, pro-life, right? There are those who say being pro-choice is good. There are those who say being pro-choice is bad. Um, and so it to, to me, and it, then that reminded me of, do you guys remember several years ago with um, Siri and how uh, people realized there was a glitch in the system? There's some kind of problem within Siri. And if it was, I think it at least happened in New York City or something like that, where people could ask, where is the closest abortion clinic? And Siri would send them to like the pregnancy help centers, not actually like Planned Parenthood or something like that. And it became a really big problem. And Apple apologized, but apparently I don't think it was Apple's fault. There was something else going on. But that was a, wait a minute, who who gets to determine Siri, determine if that's okay or not, right? Do you, do you know about the Algorithmic Justice League? No, that <laughs> sounds like a superhero type system. So tell me, because I want to be part of that. Oh, man. Oh, man. Do we wear capes? Uh, no, so this is a real thing, right? Are you Where they're, they're looking at the ways in which how you program algorithms create implicit racial bias. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're right? seeing issues with that now with mm-hmm. the news this is a, we this see is and all that kind of stuff. Big, yeah. big deal. But this is the this was the issue that Siri ran into, right? Like this was a this is a bias issue that like Siri actually the algorithm for Siri made a decision that mm-hmm. You know, led to this this sort of widespread widespread panic piece. But yeah, there is a there's a group called the Algorithmic Justice League that's really like it specifically works on like thinking about the equitable development of AI algorithms because mm-hmm. of how impactful they are on our lives. Yeah. Well, you, the listener, are in for a treat in which you will hear an interview with uh, Dr. Mohammed Arzad Ahmad, who is an expert in uh, all of these issues, and we had a lengthy conversation about whose ethics get put into the the system and how one determines that, and how even you talk about pro choice, pro life. What about ethics spanning continents? The sorts of yeah. things that people in China value over people in the United States, they're very different in some some cases. And we get into that, and it's a super interesting interview. And I do believe that would be in three weeks. Yeah. Because next week, we'll be talking with Seth Viegas about uh, transhumanism and a lot of the issues of religion and transhumanism that we've talked about already. Ian was in on that conversation. It was uh, equal parts confusing and exciting um, at times. <laughs> it's a world that I'm not all that familiar with, but he made it he made it easy to understand. So we've got some really interesting sign and synapses and interviews coming up in addition to and on top of these sorts of conversations that we're going to be having in the next couple of weeks. 